Our text this morning is John chapter 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of the... None of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is sitting at your right hand. Fill our minds with this glorious vision, not as something that we wish for, but as something that we know is true. May our lives be ordered by this knowledge. May we mortify our flesh because we know that our Savior lives. And may we multiply our loves because we know that his life is in us. We pray these things in, your, in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen. So I'm continuing on uh, through the Gospel of John. We're doing it in, in little bits here and there, but we're, we're coming near the end. I would say that with this chapter, it's quite clear there's um, so much here and there's only a little bit that I'm going to be able to get out of it. There, there's so much more, so I acknowledge I'm skipping over a number of other points that, that should be made. Um, but just to orient you, because it's been a little bit since we've been in John, um, just to sort of reorient you to the book. Um, if you were following along from the beginning, you might remember that uh, I, I mentioned that we kind of can divide the Gospel of John into half. Uh, in particular, chapters 2 through 12 cover um, the ministry of Jesus basically um, told through seven signs that he performs um, over the course of the three years of his ministering. And so that first half of the Gospel of John is often referred to as the book of signs up through chapter 12. Um, these, these lead up to chapter 12, and then in the middle of chapter 12, right at verse 23, Jesus says this, but Jesus, but Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And it's really striking if you're reading along in John, because through the first uh, 11 and a half chapters, Jesus is regularly sort of saying, kind of, not yet hold on, it's not yet. And he's pulling back and pulling back and saying, just wait. He's kind of riding the brakes through the first half of the gospel. But right there at uh, verse 23 in chapter 12 is this kind of turning point where all of a sudden he says, now. 
Now is the time. And then from that moment on through the rest of the gospel, we're now, it's, it's half of the book, but we're really just covering the last week of the life of Jesus leading up uh, to his uh, arrest and, uh, and crucifixion. So, so we're um, in the middle of this second half of the book where, where we're in basically the last day before Jesus is about to be arrested. And it's really striking how at this point he has said, now is the time. Now we're going to go. Um, but, but here's the question. What is it time for? What, what is it that he's saying now is going, is going to happen? Well, specifically, he knows that it's time for his death. Right, he he knows that the cross is coming, and clearly his um, his death on the cross is is impending, and Jesus is preparing himself for it. He's getting himself ready to face the, his coming crucifixion. But I think if you pay close attention to Jesus' words, you'll see that he's actually saying now is the time for something else, something um, more than just his death. Again, listen to that verse twenty three in chapter twelve. But Jesus answered them, saying, "The hour has come." that the Son of Man should be glorified. And I think that's really interesting. He says, the thing that's, that you're going to start noticing now is you're going to start seeing the glory of the Son of Man. You're going to see Jesus glorified. The, um, now is the time then for glory. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, was about to be revealed in his glory. And he had been holding back up to this point. But the Father, you can sort of imagine it as the Father is sitting there with the dimmer switch of the Son's glory, and he is starting to turn it uh, up rather swiftly now. Look at uh, just a few verses after that. I'm now in verses 27, 28, still in chapter 12. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again disciples are standing around. They hear that voice that the Father is saying, I'm going to make the glory happen. The glory, the glory is, is coming on. The Son is about to face something very hard, something very difficult, but he prepares himself for this trial by considering the ultimate goal of his mission, which is the revelation of the glory of God. And the Father assured him that this mission would be successful, that the glory was going to be revealed. And um, John had told us this from the very beginning. Uh, one of the comments, the arguments I made early on in this uh, sermon series that was that basically the Gospel of John is, verse, is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, the rest is commentary. You, you, you've got in these first 18 verses one of the most profound, sort of tightly packed bit of um, a description of who Jesus is and what the gospel is, that, that then the rest of the, uh, the gospel of John is constantly just explaining what is packed in there at the beginning. And you see this at um, uh, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John says that Jesus came and he was, he was overflowing with the glory of God and we, the disciples who stood around him, had a chance to actually see the glory of God revealed in the life of Jesus. I think of John standing there at the moment that the Father uh, glorifies the Son. John was a witness um, of all of this. So John had witnessed the glory of God revealed in Jesus and he, he wrote the gospel, I think really, to describe the glory that they had witnessed. Now, I'm saying all this with this emphasis on glory because this revealing of the glory of God is a really important focus of Jesus' prayer in chapter 17. Chapter 17 is one long prayer, um, and, and it's surprising how much this prayer is oriented towards this, this topic of this theme of glory and, and the glory being revealed in the life of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify uh, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Verses 4 and 5. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This is how he explains this prayer. He's, it's one long prayer for God to turn the glory on. Verse 22. Now, now he's, 
He's transitioned where he was praying for the glory to be revealed in his life. Now he's asking for the glory to be revealed in the lives of all those that believe in him. Verse 22, And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Or verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. So it's one long prayer for the glory to be revealed in Jesus and those of his disciples and those that believe in the message of the disciples. Now, this chapter, chapter 17, it's often referred to as Jesus's high priestly prayer. I wouldn't be surprised if your chapter heading, if you have little titles to your chapters, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, it's titled that uh, in your Bible, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, it's called this because uh, the German reformer, reformer David Catreus in the 16th century um, first titled it that, and that name just stuck. It became this, um, it, it kind of identified what people understood was happening in this chapter. And I, th- I think the point of this title, that this is his high priestly chair, uh, high priestly prayer, is really made in, in verse 20. Uh, where Jesus, he's, he's praying, he prays for himself for the first five verses, and then he begins praying for his disciples, that God would bless his disciples, and he does that from 6 through 19. But then in verse 20, there's a really surprising turn where he says, I do not pray for these alone, referring to his, his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, uh, For those that will believe in me through their word. He prays here for all who would ever believe in the gospel. He, he gives his word to his disciples. His disciples take his word and spread his word, and that word creates faith in everybody that, that receives it with faith. And, and, and this life, the gospel starts to spread, and the church spreads, and Jesus is here praying for everybody that the word would have that effect on. It includes, then, each of us 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, if we've heard this word and believed in it, then we are the subjects of this prayer. He's praying for you. How, um, how great is it then to get to eavesdrop on Jesus at the moment that he is praying for us, specifically praying for us? So because in this prayer, he's interceding on our behalf, this, that's why I think this is called his high priestly prayer, because he's stepping in to pray for us. And, and in this prayer, Jesus recounts his mission here. He describes what it is that he came to do. Um, he, he, he came down and entrusted to the disciples the word of God. And you'll, if you reread this, you'll notice um, how often the word comes up. He comes and he entrusts his word to his disciples. Uh, look at verse 8. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So they received his word with faith. Um, and the word has revealed God to them. As they come to the word, it reveals uh, God to them. It has sanctified them, it has united them to Christ, and it has preserved them in that relationship. That word has held on to them and, and preserved them. And that word is so powerful that his disciples will share that word with others. And this is the transition in verse 20. And whoever receives it will, with faith will also have God revealed to them, will be sanctified, will be united to Christ, and will be preserved by that word. It's like this amazing domino effect that Jesus has started in the world with his word. And he puts the word down with his disciples, and then they spread the word, and wherever the word goes, it has this effect. And the word is passed throughout the world, and it accomplishes this trans, uh, transformation wherever it goes and is received with faith. I should note it's appropriate that it's Reformation Sunday because this, this is really an important um, uh, understanding of the, the, that was recovered in the, in the Protestant Reformation, which is that the Word is what makes the church. The Word is what makes saints. The Word shows up, people receive it by faith, and the church grows up out of it. The Word is what makes the church. And this was a point of contention between the Protestant Reformers and the Catholic Church, where you had this argument or this idea that the church is made legitimate based on its basically its, um, its administrative structure and pedigree, that that is what legitimates the church. 
And the reformers were arguing, no, it's scripture. Scripture makes a church. Wherever this word goes, it creates faith in people who hear it. And that is what creates the church. But the thing that I, I want to come back to in, in chapter 17 here is that the thing, this domino effect, okay, the, the word lands and it starts to spread with everybody that receives it. The thing that this domino effect is building up to is glory. It, it, it's growing in glory. It culminates in the revelation of the glory of God. That's what Jesus is praying here for you. He is praying for you to experience this glory. It's like, um, remember Elijah, um, you know, asking God, can I just get a peek of your glory? Can I just get a little, one little glimpse of what your glory is like? Well, Jesus is specifically praying for you that you would get that vision, that you would have the glory of God revealed in your life, that you would get to see it. He prays that um, this whole mission would culminate in the glory of God being on display in your life and that you would see it. Um, and it's funny because if you think about that for a moment, if, if, if you had the opportunity to say um, you had one chance where Jesus himself would come and pray a prayer for you, what would you make that request be? What would you ask him to pray for? I think about that and I think, okay, you, you know, you have somebody who's volunteers to pray for you and it's always great, but here is Jesus Christ himself is offering to pray for you. What prayer request would you have him take forward? Uh, money, um, health, marriage, kids. What are, what are the things that are weighing on you that you, you lay awake at night wanting to, to ask this of God? Here's your one chance to have Jesus himself make that prayer. Or if you're, maybe you're more pious and you would pray for, may I have more forgiveness, you know, more love, more faith. That sounds like a, a godly thing to be asking for. But Jesus decided for you. He decided what that prayer would be. And the thing that he prayed for was glory. That, that this, this, this thing that Elijah got to taste that that would be overflowing in your life, that you would get to see the glory of God, that your life would be full of the glory of God. Look at verses, I'm going to start verse 20. I do not pray for, those, for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you all. Um, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect and one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Side note there, that last verse, verse 23, the last line of, of that verse is, I think, one of the most shocking verses in the Bible, um, that, that um, they may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That, that, that you would know that God loves you the same way he loves the Son. Right? That the Father loves you the way the Father loves the Son. I mean, that's, like, that's better than John 3.16 as far as um, promises to you. And this is one of the things that we've talked about a little bit as we've gone through the Gospel of John, that, that one of the things you see that happens in the Gospel is that what the Son has by right from the Father, by being the Son. He, he extends a form of that to you that you receive by faith. When you, when you receive Him, when you're united with Him, you get a form of that. He is the Son, you become children. He has an eternal inheritance, you have an inheritance. You, what He has, you receive. The love that He has from the Father, you now are inside of that love. And the love that the, love that the Father has for the Son becomes a love that you get to experience as well. But it, it's not just that here. Um, we also see that the glory that was the culmination of Jesus' mission is also passed on to you. Verse 22, the glory which you gave me, that the Father gave the Son, I have given them. Okay, So the Son has this glory, and that glory is now alive in your life. So if Jesus prayed for this glory in your life, if, if this glory that's the culmination of all of this, if it's supposed to be in your life, where is it? Right? Where, where, is, where is that? What, what does it look like? And 
there's, there's a kind of glory um, that I think is, it's like the glory of God in, in the throne room of God, okay? Which, which, is, which is this kind of overflowing splendor. It's the brilliant glory that the Son lived inside of eternally. It was the glory that, that he was returning to uh, um, at the ascension. Look at um, verse 5 of our chapter. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. There's this glory that, that was Jesus, the, the son's native um, environment, the, the brilliant um, glory of the throne room of God that was his by right, that he um, humbled himself and, and he stepped down from in, um, in the incarnation, right? Uh, Philippians 2 describes him sort of setting aside what was his by right to come and humble himself and, and live uh, as the incarnate son of God, as Jesus Christ. Um, but that glory of the throne room was this this bright, brilliant thing. I think this is what Isaiah has kind of a peak of in, in Isaiah 6 at the beginning when he, he sees it and he's overwhelmed. He thinks he's going to die because he saw something that is too brilliant for him. Um, but on this earth, the glory of God is different. It's, it's revealed in the humble faithfulness of the Son. The Son kept the Father's word. The Son declared the Father's name. The Son lived in the Father's love. And while this didn't have the the sort of face-melting light that the glory of the throne room of heaven has, it's still the revelation of that glory. It's how God is manifesting that glory here on earth. And John says that the disciples beheld this, this glory. And this is the glory that's already at work in your life. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 4. Starting verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay, so there's an outward man that is perishing. There's an outward man that is getting old, that is afflicted with all kinds of physical infirmities and all sorts of trials in this life. And there's this outward man that is um, suffering affliction and is, is slowly perishing. And if we judge by fleshly standards, there's no glory there. If you're looking at that outward man, there's, there's no glory there. There's just feebleness and, and increasing feebleness. But there's an inward man that is being renewed. An inward man is being renewed. And Paul says that between the two, that first, that outward man is light and is trivial. All these afflictions, and and it's interesting to have Paul describing this because you look at Paul as a man who has serious afflictions, constant afflictions. And he says, these are light, trivial little things when compared to this other thing that's happening. This growth of the inner man, which he says is this glory that's just getting larger and stronger. And, and in, in particular, it's getting heavier. It's just getting weightier and weightier. It's the serious thing in your life. Um, there, there's a pun on the Hebrew here because the Hebrew word for glory, kaved, um, it's also the same word for heavy, for something being weighty, even for somebody being really fat. You would say they're kaved. They're this is somebody you can't just push them over. They don't move, right? They when they occupy space, they occupy it. All right, that's kaved, and glory is like that. It starts to make you into something that cannot be pushed around, that, that cannot be moved. And even though the outer man is light and blowing away, the inner man is growing more and more glorious. There's a glory of God that is already on display in your life, and it likely comes in the places that you don't think of as glorious, okay? It, it, there's a glory of God that's already at work in your life, but it's the inner man that is not, people don't notice, don't think of, that that's where the glory is ap- actually happening. It comes in places that you don't think as glorious, including in our text. I think our text is really interesting this way. Um, in our text, Jesus specifically connects the glory that is at work in us with the fruit of unity. 
And I think that's just really sort of surprising. He says the glory that is on display in us is starting to show in the way that God is unifying us. Listen to 22 and 23 again. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. And he's talking again. This is the section where he's talking about you believers, those who have received his word by faith. The glory which you give me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. That they would be all united and together. Um, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You would be united, brought together in such a way that the whole world would notice that you're different, that you are united by this work that's going on in your heart. Paul describes this in Ephesians 4, verse 13. He's describing the gift of the church and the various offices in the church. And the purpose of these offices is to lead us, he says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. As, as God works in you, it has this unifying effect. It brings you together. It brings you all together. The more we receive the word of God into our hearts, the more unified we become. And that unity is, according to this prayer, God's glory on earth. God's overwhelming, brilliant glory lived out on this earth is us becoming unified. Basically, the more like Jesus we become, the better we get at simply getting along. The more like Jesus you become, the more you become the kind of person that can get along with other people. The um, Christian fellowship is supernatural. Christian fellowship, the ability to live together in harmony and unity is something that you, you, you have to have a supernatural gift for it to really work. It's something that comes from God. Divisions amongst us are diabolical. Unity is something that the Spirit gives. Psalm 133, verse 1. This is a psalm we've, we've sung a number of times. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There's something so glorious and su such a great blessing when you see people that can live together and be together and actually endure and last and persevere together. You know, Psalm 133 says it's like oil on Aaron's beard. You can tell the, they're, he's trying to come up with like some sort of um, incredible metaphor to tell you like something spectacular when you see these people living together. Now, the unity that I'm talking about is not the cult-like unity of everyone walking in lockstep like a North Korean missile parade, right? You can get everybody so they're all regimented and walking in step and they're all walking with one click as, as they go. You can create that with fleshly authority. You can make that happen. But I'm talking about something very different. I'm talking about the beauty of a people who have learned to dwell together, to live alongside one another in peace. Um, and, and with that, I'm, I'm transitioning in this sermon for, uh, for the remaining portion to just talk about the practical um, outworking of this kind of unity, how this works in our lives. Because this is a Christian discipline and one that we should be cultivating. It's the glory of the gospel lived out in our midst. For instance, first and foremost, I think this is the sort of thing that really should be on display in your home. You, you should feel it when you walk into a Christian home, that this is something that is totally different and is, and, and is spiritual, that a spirit has come and made something happen that couldn't happen on its own. When you walk into a house, you know that there's a vibe, right? You can remember like when you were in junior high and you go over to your friend's house and you visit different friends' houses and different houses have different vibes, different sort of feels. And, and you know what it's like to walk in and sometimes you walk in, you're like, man, this is scary. Like everybody's yelling. Everybody's upset. Nobody, nobody deals with anything like people who like each other. Everything is, is managed via um, some sort of shrieking argument. Or you can go to another house where, where the vibe is everybody is just sort of quiet and off in their room and on a device somewhere, but there's no actual fellowship. Everything is, is just kind of managed with minimal kind of um, commitment. You know what it's like when when you enter in and, and your, your whole goal is to kind of uh, defend yourself from having too much required of you. So you, you, you do the bare minimum and don't allow yourself to be giving anything to this family outside of the bare minimum. But then sometimes you can walk into a house and it's just joy, 
right? The, you, the, the smell of the food, the sound of the laughter, and it's just people who enjoy each other, right? And you, you walk in and you say, this is, this is different, and this is just really pleasant. This is somewhere where I would want to be. The gospel should make your family be like that. And so this is one of the challenges I want to give to you. Just think, what is the vibe of our house? What, what is the vibe of your family? What is the vibe of your apartment? How do people live together there? Is it laughter and love, or is it caustic anger and yelling? Um, when the gospel touches a family, it creates a certain tone in the house, and that sound, that smell, that vivacious uh, light that you sense, that's unity, and that unity is the glory of God here on earth. And, and to be really specific for a moment, I want to especially say, dads, this is something that is your responsibility. Um, I know it can be really easy a lot of times in a marriage. It's like your wife is the one with the personality, right? She, she's the one that, that does the entertaining. She's the one that's, that's got far more life. And guys can sort of just coast or sort of hooky bob behind where you're letting that energy create the house. But you can't do that. You have a, a responsibility to actually take the lead and be the one who is setting the tone. You, you set the tone. You lead from out front as the one with the most joy in that kind of uh, Lewis Narnian uh, description of the king as the one who's out at the front setting the tone of the laughter, the joy. It has to be you setting that if you're going to be the leader in your home. And, and, and in order to do that, this also means that you have to be somebody who actually has that kind of joy in you, right? You can't, you can't fake that. You actually have to commit yourself to the spiritual discipline of working on your own heart such that you're an actually joyful person, that you're a loving and giving person, not you're somebody that is easy to get along with because you don't, you know, make too much of a mess and you're very quiet. You want to be somebody who actually is overflowing with that life. That's the engine that should be running the house. You want to actually have enough joy in you that it can be overflowing. And, and, it, and this goes in different directions. You've got, you, you want to be the one who's setting the tone for the joy, but you also have to lead with the discipline. If you care, if you care about the tone of the house, then you're the one who's actually taking the time to figure out, this is the thing we're going to discipline for. This is the thing we're not going to worry about. You're the one who is cultivating the discipline of the house. You're drawing the lines and making sure that the discipline happens. But here's the thing, and, and this is really important, and it's, it's such a helpful thing to get this right in your head, that the discipline is in order to produce the beauty of unity. You, or, or another way of describing it is just Christian fellowship, cheerful Christian fellowship. That is your goal. And, and when, you, when you realize, okay, my goal is to have my house be this place of joyful Christian fellowship, then that orients all of your discipline, and it really changes how you discipline. Think of it this way. like um, Have you ever thought about the difference between punishment versus discipline? Punishment is just like, there was a thing that happened over here. Somebody did a bad thing. There's an automatic penalty. They, because they did this bad thing, this bad thing must happen to them as their punishment. Okay, and, and, and you can start to think of your discipline as punishment. Then you're just always saying, okay, you did that. I need to have this much pain or discomfort or whatever inflicted on you as some sort of payback. Um, like there's a karma that you're, that you're settling with it. But if you're thinking in terms of discipline, then what you're thinking is, look, there's this end. Okay, there's this end that we're going, and I'm going to discipline so that I can get us to that end. And the goal is not retribution. The goal is this end over here, which is the glory, right? Which is this, this um, fellowship, this joyful Christian fellowship. That's the goal. And when you, when you can make that transition, then it can really help with, there are a lot of things just practically that can be kind of conundrums, like how do I handle this? Because sometimes, for instance, you'll have like your son in order to be um, brought to repentance needs, you know, this much, and then you've got a daughter who needs this much to get to the same place. If you're thinking in terms of punishment, and he gets that much and she gets this much, it's not fair. If you're thinking in discipline, right, it makes perfect sense. You're just trying to get to a certain end, okay? And now, also, it can go the other way. There, there are boys that take this much, and there are girls that take this much as well. But you're, you're, as a parent, you're sitting there thinking, what do we need to get to this end? And the other thing that, that it'll help you to do is you define the, this is what we want. We want joyful fellowship in our house. And then you'll find that if, if you're just thinking in terms of punishment, 
there can be somebody who's like, they're not doing anything. They're, they're not touching any of the things you said to not touch. They're not breaking an express rule somewhere, but they're just in a little um, dark, funky cloud of discontent in the corner. And, and, and if you're thinking in terms of punishment, there's nothing to do about that because they haven't broken one of your rules. They don't need to you know, be punished for that. If you're thinking in terms of, I want joyful fellowship, then you know I still need to do something there. I can't just leave them in the corner in that dark, funky cloud, right? You want to make sure that you're bringing them into fellowship because this is what the Christian life is like. And you're missing out if you're allowing people to stay over um, in that corner. And it also, when you think this way, um, you suddenly realize why you can't discipline in anger, right? You, you, and you, you can't, if the whole point is to get people to cheerful fellowship, you can't get there by losing it yourself. If it's just punishment, then, then, then yeah, I mean, they did that, so you made their world unpleasant. I suppose everybody got even somehow. Um, and, and, and that kind of makes sense. But if you're trying to get to, to godly fellowship, you can't discipline in anger. And a lot of times people will think that, that like somehow, um, you know, some, somebody is, is disobeying, and so they need to feel the weight of their error. And so what they need is for me to lose it on them. And then, and then when they feel all of that and get crushed by that, then they'll, they'll have learned their lesson, okay? If you're thinking punishment, that kind of makes sense, but it makes no sense if your goal is to get them to godly fellowship, right? You want to make sure that you're disciplining and leading from a position of mature Christian joy. Um, and when you work in your family to produce this kind of joyful unity, the effect is powerful, right? It, it becomes one of these homes like I was just describing where you walk in, it's like, this is just a fun place to be. These people are in fellowship. They like each other. I want to be around it. That's because the spirit is at work there. The, the afflictions are light, but the glory is weighty. Um, imagine, uh, you know, visual aid here for a moment. Imagine like a huge, massive slab of marble that has been carved by a master artist. Uh, it has been carved and sculpted by this um, master artist, but it's laying on the side and it's covered with leaves and debris all over the top of it, okay? That's kind of your life and that's kind of your home. And what you're doing is you're going in with the, the Holy Spirit leaf blower, right? And, and you're just doing this with all the afflictions, with all of the trials. You blow them away and you let that marble statue come out and you see the weighty glory that is revealed underneath all of these trivial uh, little light afflictions. The fights, the jealousies, the resentments, the trials of sickness, the, the worries over the finances. All of those things are blown away by the Spirit, and you start to see the glory of true Christian joy. And what's revealed is that weighty glory, the laughter, the love, the joy of fellowship. The same thing happens in an office place. When Christians show up at work with the goal of giving themselves away, I'm coming to actually like act like a Christian um, at the office. And you, and you come with the, the goal of giving yourself away, then you start to taste the gospel in the air. What kind of Christian are you at work? And, and to be clear, I'm not talking about um, someone who's trying to always be upbeat, okay? I'm not just, I'm not saying, um, I think it'd be easy to, to think that I'm saying you just need to be a more positive person, tell more jokes, be less aggressive, you know, be, be sort of uh, sweeter. But that's not what I'm saying. I'm describing the gospel applied to your life, right? Uh, that gospel applied to your heart, where you're handling, like a Christian, the challenges that come from being around other people, because that is a real challenge, right? Uh, for instance, uh, here's a question. What, what motivates you to work hard? I'm, I'm singling out the guys again. What motivates you to work hard? There are, um, particularly the, when you're young, you can find certain vices in your life that are inner vices of the heart and the soul and the mind. They're vices that, that captivate you, but it's, you, can make, you can sort of harness them to get stuff done. And it becomes a really bad habit where you will captivate, you'll capture a vice and you'll hold on to it because it gives you power. So, so an example of this would be that I think men are particularly susceptible to would be something like anger, where, where you get angry, but when you get angry, it makes you get stuff done. 
and it makes you command other people and it makes them do things for you when you start to get angry. Um, guys will do this, particularly guys start this um, when they're younger um, in athletics, right? If you can, if you know how to go into sort of like um, incredible Hulk mode, right? Where, where you get, you get angry in competition and then that anger sort of fuels this like really aggressive you get out there and you get after it and then you perform with great excellence, then, it, then, then you cultivate that. And then that anger becomes this sort of like engine that you, that you um, it's a fuel that you drive on. And then that anger can be converted to work. It can be converted to all kinds of different things in your life where you become about getting angry and then going and dominating and showing people, um, you know, kind of rolling over the top of them. It, and, and the thing is, it feels productive because it, it makes it in, into something that you can, it gives it a, a power that you can get things done. But it's destructive because it's tearing you apart. It's destroying your house. It's destroying your, your office um, friendships. It's destroying everybody around you, but it's giving you, you know, net profit. So, so it feels like the bottom line is good, but in the, in the long run, it's destroying you. And you could do the same thing with envy or jealousy. Like you can, um, at a very young age, you can become captivated with money. And, and, then the, and then you start to taste what it looks like to actually turn a profit. And then that becomes this thing that just, you cannot not um, go for the profit. And, it, and it, it gets a hold of your soul. And then you roll over the top of everybody else around you. Do you have joy? Do you have fellowship? Do you have unity? Or, or do you shred it all because of these things that have a hold of your heart? How does this impact how you interact with your coworkers? How do you handle it? When, when you have been wronged, um, do you ask for um, forgiveness for others or when you've wronged them? Do you confront and help other people come to actual repentance? Or do you know how to let love cover something? Or do you have the capacity to say, I can just... I've got the love of God in me. I can just slather that with the love of God and I can walk on and it doesn't bother me. And, and, and I can completely forget that this thing ever happened. You ever want, you know, there's a great joy when somebody comes and they kind of remind you of some tension between the two of you that you've forgotten about it. And when, when you can have a moment where there's, there's a bump that you've forgotten about, that's like a wonderful testimony that God working in your life. That's how you have fellowship uh, with other people. Um, do, you, do you deal with it when you can tell that fellowship has been broken? Or um, do you seek to biblically restore it? Do you, when there's this, this friendship has broken off, do you just let it go? Or do you know how to actually go and fix it? And does it concern you that I need to go and fix it and make sure that this fellowship is restored? This discipline, this striving for biblical unity is something that should characterize us as a congregation. Many of us are new here, a lot of new faces, and there's an initial thrill that comes from being with like-minded people, especially if you've lacked this for a long time. If this is your first taste of being around people who um, think like you, there's a real thrill that comes with that. But that thrill isn't necessarily the spirit at work. We could all get that same thrill by if we all were like really into airplane modeling, right? We could, we could all get together and be excited. Finally, there's people that are like me um, in the same room. But, but what happens when you're with people that um, dislike each other? Like, we, we hold really different positions, right? We're really opposed in all kinds of ways. Or, or even worse than that, what happens when we're a body of people who have actually a long record of wronging one another? Um, I've wronged you, you've wronged me, and here we are in the same room. How do, you, how do you deal with that? When you persevere in love and forgiveness, that's unity. When you can sit there in the midst of a, a group where it's difficult and it's tense, and there's a long backstory of different confrontations and bumps, but you can just sit and actually let the gospel work its way out and find Christian, joyful Christian unity in that setting, that's, that's the gospel, that's the word actually having its effect. This doesn't mean, um, that, or sorry, I should say, this means that we don't medicate tension with distance. This is what we always do, right? You, you, there's some sort of tension, and so you just separate and avoid one another. That's not the gospel at work, all right? We don't medicate tension with distance. We cure, cure it with the gospel. We actually confront, confess, and forgive one another, and then cover the whole thing with love. 
And you remember in uh, Philippians 2, or sorry, Philippians 4, when Paul has to single out Yodia and Sintichi. I can never figure out how you actually say their names. But someday we'll meet them in heaven, and they're going to correct all of our pronunciations. But, but, but he has to single them out because he's writing to the Philippians, and he's addressing this church. And he said, but hang on a second. You two over there, you got to knock it off right? And everybody get these two to be friends with one another. And it's that awkward moment, like in the college lecture, when the professor stops, has to confront two people because they keep whispering nonstop, right? You feel that in Philippians. He's going along about the grace of God, and then, hold on, you two, you've got to fix this, because that's what the glory of God looks like. You can't have a congregation where everybody um, is ripping each other apart, um, we cannot tolerate in our own lives being out of fellowship with other saints. If you have something against someone, you have one of two options. You can go and confront them, or you can let love cover it, right? Go confront them or let love cover it. But either way, it needs to end with you being in joyful fellowship with them. True, joyful Christian fellowship. Psalm 133, verse 1 again. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That kind of unity is glorious. That is glory of God here on earth. It's a taste of the glory that is to come. I think of when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, he said, this is John 11, verse 40. He says that the disciples were getting to see the glory of God. Here's Lazarus. He was dead. He comes back to life. He walks out of the tomb, and they're pulling his grave clothes off of him. And Jesus says, that's the glory of God, right? When you get to see something like that, you're seeing God's glory happening because you're seeing the powerful effect of him in your life. That same resurrection glory is visible in you when Christians live in unity. It's like a dead man just came back to life when a bunch of people can actually get along. And it's not cult power conformity to some legalistic standard. This is resurrection life working its way out as the fruit of the Spirit. The engine that drives the glory of unity is not a demand for unity. If we go back to that North Korean missile parade, the thing that makes them all unified is a demand for unity. You, you're there, somebody's sitting there yelling at them to get in step and making sure that they are unified. But in the engine that drives the glory of unity is not a demand for unity. It is just the fruit. Unity is, is the fruit of this engine. The thing that drives unity is Christ. You pursue Christ, and that's what creates the unity. He's the head of the body, as Paul told us. If you want to be connected to the rest of the body, you cling to the head, and the body comes with it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death for us, and we thank you for the life that he gives us. Father, we ask that you would grant to us this unity, this spirit-powered unity that transcends understanding. May we live it out in our families and in our jobs. And we especially ask that as we begin to move to become our own church plant, that you would root deep down in this body of believers a commitment to pursue biblical fellowship with one another. Father, may our town see the glory of the gospel in the fellowship that we have with one another. So we pray now as your son taught us to pray, saying... This meal teaches us how to prepare for hardship. Recent years have seen unprecedented loss of freedoms in this land, from the increasing socialization of medicine and education and the economy to emergency orders, shutdowns, and medical mandates. Many people understandably wonder what comes next. Many people who lived through the early 20th century will tell you that all of this seems eerily familiar. Totalitarianism is the politicization of everything. Everything is in principle under the state. And the obvious question that arises is what should we do? What should we do to prepare? What should we do to resist? The Christian faith was made for these moments. It was made for times like this. How? Well, Remember the first Christians, they lived in the Roman Empire where pagan notions of freedom and justice reigned. And in just over 300 years, that empire was beginning to profess faith in Jesus. How did that happen? It happened by Christians simply living as Christians. They gathered to worship faithfully even when it was illegal. They were honest in their business dealings. They worked hard to provide for their own families as well as any in the church who were in need. They confessed their sins and forgave one another quickly. They kept their marriage vows. 
and they earnestly taught their children the faith. They were ready to do good and show mercy to all, the sick, the elderly, even their enemies. But above all, they were ready to die for the faith, ready to lose anything and everything for the sake of Christ. Why? Because of the love of Christ proclaimed here at this table. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son for us. How can you prepare for what's coming? Grow in this love. Meditate on this love. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This kind of love worships. This love works hard. This love forgives gladly. This love dies. And this love can never die because Jesus is risen from the dead. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks. So let's give thanks together. Our God and Father, we praise you and thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. We thank you for that great love with which you have come for us and claimed us and secured us for yourself. And so, Father, allow that love to fill our hearts and lives so that we might be prepared for anything. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You think about glory. You think about things that shine. And, and I think sometimes it's helpful to think about just people doing things that are amazing. That's really kind of what you ought to think of when you think of glory. I think that YouTube is helpful for these sort of things sometimes, especially around the Olympics. But, you, you know, these people are doing things that are amazing. They're able to do things, and you look at it, and you say, wow, aren't people amazing? And, and that's actually part of the point. They reflect the glory of God in, their, in this, the ability that God's given them to do various and sundry things, and they shine with the glory of God. In so many ways, what it means that Jesus reveals the glory of God to us is that he's revealing to us what it means to be really human. For the first time, we see a real human being, someone who shines with what we were meant to shine with, bearing the image of God. And one of the hardest things in the world, one of the things that we are called to practice is unity. It's hard to do that as human beings. But that's what we're called to. That's what Christ came to restore in us because not only is it glorious to see a human being shining with the gifts and the graces that God's given them, but it's, it's doubly, triply, multiplied glory to see multiple images of God loving each other, getting along with one another, laughing together, serving one another. That is glorious and it really does shine. We live in a dark world that is starving for that. And as you love your wife, as you love your kids, as you love your husband and those around you, it shines. And there will be people who say, how do you do that? And the answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. So pursue Christ. Pursue Christ in your marriages, in your workplaces, in your homes, so that his glory may be manifest in your unity. So receive the blessing of God. Receive the glory of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. And amen.